Good morning. Oh, good. We're going to be interactive. I love it. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity from all of the elders and pastors. I just want to say thank you for, for providing that for us. Um, one of my goals, I've been an elder here almost 20 years now, and one of the things that I am super thankful for that we have uh, created, I would say, on the, elder, on the elder team and the pastor team, a true camaraderie, a true friendship, a true loving one another and caring for one another's burdens. And that, uh, your recognition of that was super encouraging, and so I just, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And I would applaud you, but I've got other stuff to do here, so. All right. Well, before we actually get started, I'm not going to jump into our passage this morning right where Todd left off in Matthew 18. Uh, instead, I want to jump down to, whoops, magic clicker. Here we go. Yeah, we're still in Matthew. Yeah, that's where we still are. So we're going to jump into Matthew 19, 13 to 15, which we have up here. So let's take a look at these. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Uh, we'll see here in a few minutes uh, that there's a lesson in Matthew 18 that Christ needs to reinforce with his disciples uh, regarding the fact that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children such as these. Um, the ones who believe and have faith and learn as children. That's, that's why we're called children of God. And that's the lesson he's trying to teach, but there's a lot more here. And where I want to start with is the rebuke. See, notice that the, the rebuke the disciples bring is not to the children, all right, but the ones who brought the children, the parents or the family. See, generally in that culture, the place and role of children was to learn and be respectful. Now, they didn't have value yet. They had potential value depending on what they learned or how well they obeyed or, or, or uh, participated in life. But Christ wants to remind the disciples of the picture of faith and humility inherent in the children. And that's why he welcomes them. Okay. I want to talk to the kids for, in here for a few minutes. Can you hear me okay? Oh, no, no. I heard adults tell me you can hear me okay. That doesn't help. I'm not talking to you. Can the kids hear me okay? All right. Good. Good. Uh, you know, when I was... Um, I really do want to talk to you. See, I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone, and that means that I'm a leader at this church. And I want you to know that I am thankful that you are here this morning. See, when I was a kid, we had something that we called children's church. And it was pretty similar to what you normally do every Sunday. Your, uh, your uh, parents take you over to your assigned rooms, and you learn about Jesus with people your own age. You sing different songs, 
and then you go home. And it was pretty rare when we got to go in what we called big church in the sanctuary. And so uh, we'd sit with mom and dad or we'd get a group together and sit with our friends. And the music was different and everybody sat really still. And the preacher would get up and teach using a bunch of big words I couldn't understand. And sometimes I couldn't wait to go back to children's church uh, because it was so much more comfortable for me. But there were times when I sat in that room, when I sat in big church and listened to that preacher and I heard something that I absolutely needed to hear. And I was glad I was there. See, from time to time, we ought to worship God a little differently than we usually do. And that's good for us. Somebody today cornered me and said, by the way, if the world's out of balance, it's because we're not sitting on this side anymore, we're sitting over here. (laughs) Now, if that's the extent of how you worship differently, good. But this is different. We have kids in here. And, you know, I'm glad you are here as kids, yet your being here might annoy some people because they like it quieter when somebody's preaching. And, and they don't like you moving around. And, and, and But I don't want you to ever think that you're not welcome here. You are absolutely welcome in this room. You are absolutely welcome to worship with us. Um, this is your church too. And you might like going back to children's church. You might like going to children's ministry and hanging out there, and that's totally okay. But I will never put a lock on this door keeping you out of this room. And that is not just for children. There's a, there's a bigger principle here about those who are marginalized. I mean, what it says here is do not hinder them. And there is nothing in me that ever wants to hinder a child, hinder someone from coming to Jesus. Uh, We'll talk about that more in a few minutes, but we should not prevent somebody from coming to meet with Jesus just because it makes us uncomfortable. And unless we become like children in humility, we'll never learn to accept them. Okay, that's my intro. Thank you very much. Now we're going to jump into Matthew 18. So let's pray. God, thank you for this passage that you've given us. Father, I pray, oh, Father, I pray that you do your work. This is your word. This is handled and brought forth by your spirit. This is combined in hearts with your spirit. So, Father, I thank you for being here. I thank you for the fact that you will do your work in spite of the crises that we're living in our lives and in spite of my inability to speak well. God, I am grateful for the fact that you are here. So, Father, as we open your word, may we bring you honor in your name. Amen. All right. Let's get moving, or somebody's going to tell me I'm running too long. So, all right. Matthew 18, this is where we are. And it says, at that time... The disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so now recall from two weeks ago. Okay, look, I know that was a really long time ago. All right, two weeks was clear back, wow, almost the middle of October. Now, two weeks ago, Todd was leading us through the conclusion of Matthew 17. And remember that Jesus had just told them that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men, killed, and then raised again on the third day. And Todd did a good job of talking about the anxiety the disciples were feeling because of this. And when we get to the end of Matthew 18, uh, in a few weeks, Jesus will provide some more comforting words from the, for them. But for right now, they're deeply grieved. Now, we don't actually know how long the time is between the end of Matthew 17 and the beginning of 18. What we do know is that, is that Matthew was intentional in putting these things together. And so as we approach verse 1, we need to keep in mind that the disciples are filled with grief on news of Jesus' upcoming death and somewhat confused about him being raised on the third day. And on the heels of that anxiety, which really does not appear to have impacted them very long at all, they move on to rivalry to ask this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, according to passages in Luke and Mark, which I'm not going to put up here, uh, this question is the result of an argument the disciples had been having, and they can't seem to let this go. In fact, when we get into Matthew 20, they're even going to bring their parents into the mix to try and figure out who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Um, so they've moved on from anxiety, from worry, and now they're worried about security. But here's the real question. Who is first? Who's the best? Who gets top role? So I see two things in this question. The first thing I see is the insensitivity of the disciples of even asking the question in the first place. Christ has just told them that he's going to be killed. And they want to know, well, since you're going to die, who's going to be first? Now, open to interpretation as to whether they'd processed resurrection or not, I kind of think they hadn't. But I think they just wanted to know who was going to be top dog. That's what they were interested in. But secondly, because I tend to find humor all kinds of places in Scripture... I find it hysterical that they take the exact thing they've been arguing about, who's the greatest, and they ask it without filtering it, without changing language, they ask it of Jesus. Now, let's not forget who they're asking, okay? They are asking the one who will sit at the right hand of the Father. And I just picture Jesus in his head saying, uh, who is the greatest? Uh, that would be me. Right? And Jesus kind of turns this on its head and he says, look, it's not about rank. It's about location. It's about 
your participation and belonging in the kingdom of God. So Christ ignores the offense, he ignores their blindness, he ignores the selfishness, and all that's tied up in that question, and instead calmly answers them. But he answers the question the way he often does, with a story. He tells them a story, and this time he picks up a child and uses it as an actual visual aid. And he calls the child to himself, and he has him stand there. And I don't know about you, but if I had just asked, who's the greatest kingdom, and Christ sets a child before me, I'm like, okay, maybe you don't understand what I'd asked you, because this isn't the way I would think you'd answer this question. I love this. Look at verse 3. And he said, truly I say to you. Okay, truly. This is super important. You need to hear what I'm telling you. Pay attention. We've talked about the word behold before. This is the same kind of concept. He uses it twice in this passage we're going to be looking at. But this is really important. Christ is about to say something that he really needs them to understand. And he says, entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom... That's what's in verse 3. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and become like children. So two things. The greatest in the kingdom is entry first. And entry into the kingdom requires repentance and a turning from what their hearts are set on to something different. Notice the first step is to turn. We turn away from sin and turn toward the kingdom it's never enough to just turn away we have to turn toward something else and in this case the kingdom which we turn toward the kingdom which in faith which james says is a faith that works that the works the things that christ has called us to do as we follow him he's telling to the disciples not to be in a fight for the top position but instead, be overjoyed to be there. Be overjoyed to be in the kingdom. Now, being great in the kingdom is not about personal merit or accomplishment. If it was, children would not be able to access it. They haven't had time for personal merit or accomplishment. So it can't be that. And there is no other way to enter the kingdom. But as a child, we cannot earn it. We cannot pay for it. Here's the thing that always catches me. We cannot repay for it. We cannot repay the grace that brings us in. And we cannot force our way in through strength or wisdom. Unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom. And if you humble yourself as a child, you will be the greatest in the kingdom. See, this is an invitation to trust, to, to open, to always be willing and anxious to learn the way a child is. The, uh, children, are, children are always willing to learn. Um, the inevitable questions of why, what, and where, right? Uh, Dad, why is the sky blue? Seriously? Not an engineer. Accountant. Give me a break. Um, <laughs> Why don't cows fly? Now, that one I can handle. That's a good one. Um, but the 
the constant process of asking questions, the constant process of learning. See, this is what we should be as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples. We should always be asking, Christ, what do you want me to do? Christ, how do, we, how do I make my life look like you? If my goal is to become Christ-like, what does that look like? God, help me figure that out. And help me figure that out in the people I'm with. Help me understand that process. And kids, in the humility of a child, they're unconcerned with social status. At least at first. It's not until the world's influence begins to get into them that we begin to see their desire for superiority. See, a little child makes no claims on worthiness or greatness. He just enjoys the care of his parents and others who love relying on them for all they need. See, that's the greatest in the kingdom. That's the greatest in the kingdom, one who is sincere, not self-centered, open to whatever God asks, and obedient to whatever he asks. And this is where the disciples are missing the point. They want to be first. The children are dependent and vulnerable, relying on others to care for them, just as we are to be in Christ, dependent, relying on him. Not trying to figure it out for ourselves, but relying on him in humility. Okay? I thought we were being interactive. Okay? All right. Good. You're with me. Good. Let's go to the next slide. All right. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Uh, you know what? Let's, uh, give me one second here. Let's go here. Before we get to the heaviness that's in verses 6 through 9, we need to set a foundation. And it's right here in verse 5. It's right here in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See, I believe the one such child refers back to verse 4, speaking of the person who humbles themselves as a child. This is one who comes to Jesus as a child and now gets to wear the title, child of God. That's the title I wear. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. These are those who believe, Christians who have come to faith, disciples, and whatever affects us affects the God that we're connected with. It affects Christ. Either in rejoicing or in pain, th this physical child is a representative of the child of God. A while back, Bob Krychek um, taught us about Christ as the vine and our abiding in him as the branches. Acts 9, when Saul is confronted by Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, all the people that Saul had persecuted, Christ looks at Saul and said, why did you persecute me? See, there's this connection between Christ and his children. In my mind, Paul, I, Matthew is really trying to get the disciples to understand there's a connection 
There's a connection between Christ and his children. And in my mind, this verse right here, this passage, maybe even this verse, may be the best argument against that Christianity is just a religion. See, it's, it's people who are rescued and redeemed into family and, and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, yeah, this isn't just about a transactional thing that, that keeps us out of hell, but a wonderful opportunity to have and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship is critically important when we get to verse 6. Verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Okay, that doesn't sound like a lot of good news. That doesn't sound like good news at all. But there's some serious stuff in here I want you to pay attention to. Uh, you know, the passage, uh, we may be talking about kids specifically, but uh, the word here in the passage is really scandaliso from where we get our word scandal. And what it really means here is someone who uh, causes someone else to sin, or perhaps we can understand it better as um, I obstruct another's path to following Jesus. Uh, it's when someone sets out a trap or digs a pit. But the gist here is making someone unable to understand the gospel. But I think if it's even more than that. And this is where you're going to kind of burn me in effigy, I think. Um, I think what he's really talking about is people who are not helping to keep their relationship with God as childlike. It's helping them to lose that sense of dependence and vulnerability. That's who he's talking to. That's who deserves to wear the millstone, somebody who blocks someone else. Now, if we're talking about kids, I think part of the issue here is our sacrificing the innocent nature and, or, or teaching children to abandon humility and feed the desire for superiority. Are we teaching them to sacrifice childhood and be the very best sportsman they can be? Or instead of just allowing them to be a good and diligent learner, are we driving them to be the valedictorian with a 4.4? Are we teaching children to treasure those things that scripture says moth and rust will destroy and thieves could come steal? Kids, are you leading one another into sin? Are you sinning and then asking someone else to cover it up for you and just not tell anybody? Even better, are you part of the cover-up? Parents, Ephesians 6.4 says that we could be provoking our children to wrath in a way that we treat them. Are we neglecting our children in either physical or emotional provision? Are we instilling fear in them as we fight amongst ourselves in front of them? Oh. 
Are you forcing them to participate or be a part of conversations in your own marriage difficulties? You know, we need to consider if some of these things, if some of these areas are blocking our children's understanding of the gospel. And we need to consider, as the rest of Ephesians 6.4 says, how to motivate our children and encourage our children to love and, and uh, yeah, we need to encourage them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, but if we apply the verse, if we apply verse 6 here, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, um, we can look at it and say, no, specifically this is obstructive sin. You know, the protection of the children of God is so desperately important, so hugely, it's just huge. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal to God, which is why he's using this huge language. He's, he's, he's using this massive dramatic language about millstones. Uh, the disciples in their arguments of who is first, this is exactly what they're doing to one another. Okay, they're leading one another to sin with anger and the desire for prestige. But our goal should be to lead one another to holiness. Our goal should be to lead one another to holiness. That's that's part of our job as elders is to lead you to holiness, not to block you from encountering Jesus and certainly not to point you in a direction of sin. We pray diligently that we would not be the ones to lead you, but Never, 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 never be the one that brings that blocking. What of that man? Okay. Verse 7. Woe to the world, the world, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. First, Christ says there are things in the world that will lead us astray, that will distract us. The New American Standard Bible translates it inevitable. Inevitable. Opposition will come. It isn't strange. It's, it's the natural battle between the world and the followers of Jesus. We're in war. This is what's going to happen. We're going to be tempted to sin. And this is the reason that Christ came, to rescue us from those things, to rescue us from these distractions that make us not want Christ in the moment, these things that draw our hearts away. Well, anybody know what the word woe means? Woe? Not woe, but similarly. You know, it's a massive warning. All through Scripture, woe conveys a, a very real sense of be somewhere else. Do something else. Quit that. Or this very horrible thing will happen. See, it's a word that's supposed to rouse us to action every time it's used. And uh, I've got a bunch of passages here which I don't think I'll share with you because it's, um, I don't think we have time. All right. Well, here's some more fun verses. Ready? Here we go. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay. Ready? Christ here is using some very intense language to communicate the massiveness of this idea. Now, this passage is somewhat a repeat of what we looked at when we were in the, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. But where Matthew 5 deals with lust and adultery, Matthew 18 deals with pride. But he uses similar language, and even more than that, it's how we need to deal with all sin. We, we need to deal with sin ruthlessly. When Christ talks about the eye, he means not just we, but we, what we look at, but the thoughts and ideas it brings us and sticks in our imagination. It provides insight to the heart, which, which then causes the planning and execution of our hands and our feet. Here's the point. If the most precious thing you have is the cause of sin, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Christ is emphasizing how bad sin is, how ruthless we must be to eliminate it from our life, and how important holiness is. See, sin offends Jesus. The very one who, who, who came to rescue us, sin makes a mockery of our belief. The pollution of our heart comes out in what we do and, and how we process things in our imagination. And even back in, in Matthew 12, when he's talking to the Pharisees, Christ says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, we must hate sin and all that we can do, we should do all that we can to destroy it at all costs within ourselves. Nothing, I read this and I just loved it. Nothing is so valuable for us to preserve at the expense of righteousness. Nothing is so valuable for us to preserve at the expense of righteousness. You know, when we get to Matthew 18, we'll see the story of a young man who is told to sell all that he has in order to gain eternal life. And he can't do it. He can't get rid of that which keeps him from following. And that's why causing another one to sin is so important. It's so big in the eyes of the Savior. Well, this is a pretty tough passage, but let me see if I can give you a visual picture of this that might help you remember... Uh, how important it is to get rid of sin. See, Christ uses the examples of hands and feet and eyes, saying it's better that we didn't have any of these than to sin. See, the idea here is that it's not it's not to actually cut off your hands and feet or pluck out your eyes, but to behave as if you did. Behave as if you did. See, if your eyes, if your eyes lead you and your imagination to sin, don't look at those things. Behave 
as if you had actually lost an eye and refuse to look at those things. You know, we have the ability to fight temptation according to 1 Corinthians 10. And believe me, there are lots of things to look at. Now, if your temptation comes from somewhere you go, don't use your feet to go there. Not there either. Quit going places that that cause you or lead you toward sin. And if your hands, if your temptation is to do something you know that God has told you not to do, behave as if your hands can't do them. See, when we don't have these things, then we can't get distracted by sin. It's and that's Christ's point. It's better to not have hands and eyes than be, and feet than to be drawn into sin. That's not where we're supposed to be doing. We need to get the motivation to eliminate sin from our heart all the way into action by protecting our eyes, by protecting our hands and our feet from leading us into sin. When Christ died to forgive my sin and I accepted as a follower of Jesus... He redeemed my heart. But he didn't just die for that part of the body. He didn't just die for my heart. He died for all of me. He died so that I might use my feet to follow him and go to where he tells me to go and then I might use my hands to care for others and to give to him. And then I might use my eyes as bloodshot as they are to read his word and to learn from him and and to control those things in my imagination. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. Here's the big idea in this verse, okay? One more reason we don't despise the little ones. One more reason we don't get in the way of teaching them, of helping them see who Christ is. There is angelic protection and provision. One thing I see repeatedly in Scripture when angels show up, angels show up to talk to somebody, and generally it's fear not. You know what's not in this verse? Fear not. Which means they're here for business. The angels are protecting on purpose. In, the, in this culture, as I said earlier, children were understood to have potential value, but probably no current value and therefore despised. And I think we might despise children in our culture a different way. We idolize them. We center our world around their wants and desires rather than centering our actions and hearts on how Jesus had sacrificed to call them It's our job, I'm sorry, it's the job of the Savior to make our children significant. That's his job. It's not our job to make them significant in the world. That's the wrong goal. 
And we go back to humility. We go back to humility, right as, just as we did at the start of the passage. Do not despise these little ones. Uh, the little ones is really just a, a, a term of endearment that, that uh, Christ uses when he talks to his followers or talks of his followers. And this should remind you in Matthew 5, or 3, when we were singing just a, few, uh, just a little bit earlier about the poor in spirit. The disciples shouldn't be despising humility. They should be despising pride. See, God's elevation is not on our list. It's on his. Remember that humility is a a position of lowly and insignificant. It's the last seat at the table. And it's the work of Christ that elevates the children of God, according to 1 Corinthians 12. Humility is what we strive for. Well, we're going to take one more thing, and then we're going to close up here. And so this is our passage on the lost sheep. Now, Todd's going to come back next week. Next week, right? Yeah, next week. And he's going to give some more more example on this. Uh, But let's just take a look at Matthew 18, 12 to 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, here it is again, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that ever went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Well, most of us know this story already. It's, it's repeated a couple of times in, in, various, in various books in Scripture. But certainly, I think the, the thing to note in this passage is that this passage is reflecting that Christ loves the entire flock. This is certainly where we see love exercised in pursuit. He doesn't just love the ones who are fully devoted followers, but also those who are learning and failing and needing rescue. Because most of us at some point have been that sheep that have gone astray, some for moments, some for days, some for years. But Christ, the one who loves us, is always in pursuit of our hearts and our hands and our feet and our eyes. I will say this as I relate this parable here to children. Uh, for me, this is kind of how I see our, um, our support for children here at Cornerstone. Um, we go and search for the lost sheep. And we do that in, by uh, supporting the preborn through the community pregnancy center. Uh, we do that for the unloved in foster care and adoption. Uh, we do that uh, for the abused in Forever Found. And then there's the 99, which I would say is our children's ministry, including Imago Day, especially including Imago Day. And on a broader stance, the lost sheep is the reason we put so much energy and resources into care at all levels. At all levels. From from the work of our our bereavement team that's worked so hard on services, including yesterday, to the prayer room and our soul care work. You know, with a God that rejoices that much over the returning of a lost sheep, how could we ever dare to cause one of those sheep to stray? And that's why in humility we never want to get in the way. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a wonderful opportunity to share your word. Father, I pray not that it's just memorable, but Father, I do pray that we would take from here the understanding that sin has no part in our lives, that humility as children is how we access the kingdom of God. Father, these are the things that we want to remember and own. And Father, we can only do that by, by prayer and, 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 and receipt of your grace and your encouragement. Father, thank you for all that you give us. Thank you for all of these things. God, we're, I'm grateful for this church. I'm so grateful the kids were in here this morning. Thank you for bringing them to us. Thank you for bringing them in. God, may we now worship you. We're so looking forward to Emily's baptism. God, thank you for that. Help us to rejoice together. In your name, amen.